chapter 3 this morning, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to cover the first four verses, uh, Lord willing. In the first four verses, there is one piece of instruction that is based upon seven truths in the passage. And I'd like for us to review each of those briefly, if time allows. But Colossians chapter 3 is going to be the next chapter that uh, we study together, moving on from James chapter 1. This portion of the Word of God is a great summary of the Christian life. It is very similar to Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. Those two passages also really present the Christian life in summary form. The book of Colossians as a whole follows a pattern that is evident in many of the epistles in your New Testament that were written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you read Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, maybe not as much those books, but Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, we could argue about Hebrews, but the structure of those books is similar where, at, where the first half of the book will be primarily doctrinal. It'll be heavily focused on uh, the truths of biblical Christianity, and then the second half of the book, somewhere along the line, there'll be a shift, and the second half will go from doctrine to practice, the outworking of theology in your daily life, how it affects the way that we live in this world for Jesus Christ. And Colossians is the same way. The book focuses on the centrality of Jesus Christ. The theme of Colossians is probably Colossians 1.18 about Jesus Christ being the head of the church and in all things that he might have the preeminence. He is before all things and by him all things consist. Colossians focuses on what we are in Christ, what we have with Christ, what we are of Christ. And all of those theological truths are emphasized in the first two chapters of the book and then in chapter 3, moving on into chapter 4, we begin to focus more on the daily Christian life and how we live because of uh, what is true according to the Bible and who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 says that we are complete in Him. Okay, so what does that mean? How am I then to live? Colossians chapter 3 and verse number one, the Bible says, if ye then, if ye then, see this is built upon all of the arguments that have preceded this chapter, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Four more reasons. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So what are we to do because of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ? We're to seek the things that are above. We're to set our affection on things above. We are to be heavenly minded. We are to be eternally focused. We are not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. Don't waste your life in temporal pursuits. 
Don't waste your life on that which will not outlast this life. Don't be earthly in your perspective. Don't be materialistic in your desires. Set your affection on things above. Don't lay up treasure on the earth. Lay up treasure in heaven, Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 6. We we really need to uh, help really need to, to, to wrap our minds around this truth that life is short and eternity is long. Even if you live a long life, earthly speaking, let's say you live to be a hundred years. Let's say science advances and medicine advances, not likely, but you go past that. Let's say people start living to 150. That would be crazy. Can you imagine how weird it would be to be 150 years old? I mean, I'm half crazy now, and I'm 37. I hope I make it to 70 with half my mind. I'm being honest. Can you imagine being 150 years old? But what if you had 150 years on this earth? That is nothing compared to eternity. Your life is a vapor. It appears for a little time. And then vanish of the way. But most people, sadly, even most saved people, live their lives on this earth, and it's all focused on life on this earth. They don't do anything that will outlast them. They spend all their time, all their labor, all their effort, all of their affection, all of their seeking for temporal advantage, for material comfort, right? And what a shame to get to the judgment seat of Christ after you die and enter eternity and see your entire life go up in smoke. All of your works burnt up, nothing to lay at the feet of Jesus Christ. Is that going to be you? Where are your affections this morning? What do you really care about? What are you seeking this morning? What, what is your life about? Based upon everything that God has done for us and everything that Jesus is to us, it really ought to help us recalibrate our minds and our hearts and take an eternal perspective. We really need to pray what Jonathan Edwards prayed. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyes. Help me see everything in life through the lens of eternity. That would really help you be a better witness, wouldn't it? If we could see people as having an eternal soul because they do, that's going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell because it is. If we would think about that, we'd probably have a lot better chance of getting over ourselves passing out that gospel tract and opening our mouth and engaging in a, in a, in a conversation, in, in, in taking the risk, right, of embarrassment or rejection or, but compared to eternity, what does that matter? If we could take this mindset I think it would really help us just make the right choices and the right decisions about 
how we spend our time and what we get involved in and who we associate with, I think it would really help us to narrow things down and make a lot of, a lot of choices easier if we'd set our affection on things above, if we would seek first the kingdom of God. So this instruction in, in verses 1 and 2, to seek those things which are above, to set our affection on things above, it's not only based upon the arguments of the first two chapters, which we don't have time to study this morning, but seven statements made in these first four verses. They're in your outline there on the back of your bulletin. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and list them now, and we'll do our best to review them and then uh, try to reemphasize what we just spoke about. Here is the basis of the instruction in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Number one, the believer is risen with Christ. Number two, Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Number three, we are dead. Number four, our life is hid with Christ in God. Number five, Christ is our life. Number six, he shall appear. Number seven, we shall be with him in glory. Now, what does all that mean, and how does that relate to what we're being instructed to do here? Uh, let's see if we can uh, decipher those things from the Scripture this morning. It's similar to Romans chapter 12. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 12. Hold Colossians 3. We'll be right back. Romans chapter 12. These are verses you know well. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There are things God wants you to do. He wants you to lay your life on the altar of sacrifice. He wants you to not be conformed to this world. He wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's clear. That's the instruction. But the instruction is built upon a therefore. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of everything we've said to this point, this is what you ought to do. By the mercies of God, you see, there is, there is plenty of motivation for the kind of Christian life that God is asking us to live. The Christian life requires faith. It does. But it's never blind faith. It's faith that is built upon credible evidence. For instance, the case of creation there, there are plenty of reasons to believe that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now, you have to believe that. You weren't there. Nobody was. You have to receive it by faith. Through faith, we understand the world's refrained by the word of God. But there's all kinds of reasons why we should have that faith. It's consistent with scientific principles and laws of nature. Whereas the alternatives are completely unscientific. But we're not just talking about the doctrines of Christianity or the truths of the Bible. When it comes to the things that God asks you to do, there are always really good reasons for it. 
That's something that's difficult about being a child and then uh, progressing through the stages of childhood and adolescence as you uh, strive to one day become an adult and find out it's not necessarily all that it was cracked up to be. But as you're young, you've got all kinds of people telling you to do all kinds of things, and a lot of times it just doesn't make sense. You know what I'm talking about? And a lot of times you ask why, and sometimes you get an answer, and sometimes you don't, and sometimes the answer is because I said so, and it really makes you mad, and then you're going to grow up, and 10 years later, you're going to say the exact same thing. I promise you, you will. You're arguing with me in your mind right now, because I sat there, and I argued with whoever said it, but I promise you are going to, all the things you say and you think I am never going to do, you're going to do all those things. That's your parents did. You are. And you're going to remember that you said you never would. And you're going to be slightly convicted. Ask me how I know. Okay? There's a reason for it. So, now, I'm, it's good to begin to grow and begin to be able to have the conversations and understand the reasons. And as a parent, I think it, it is important to help your children understand that as they're able to receive it. But, but biblically, God does that, is what I'm trying to say. God doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us why we ought to do it. And if we'll pay attention, and if we'll listen, and if we'll learn, it'll really help us with the instruction that he gives. So that's, that's kind of the whole that's, that's the whole basis of what we find in Colossians chapter 3. We're not just being told what to do. There are all these reasons given why we should. First of all, that the believer is risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ. And it's interesting, the if, that's not necessarily a condition in the sense that it's something that's in question. Like if, that means maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Now, a lot of times you're building a conditional statement and, and that's, the, that's the situation. But here, it's, it, it's reality. And this if is forming the basis of an argument. If ye then be risen with Christ. Well, you are. If you're saved, you are risen with Christ. And because that is true, here's what I have to say to you. So you're risen if you're saved. You are. Think about that. God said you are risen with Christ. How does that work? What does that mean? We don't have time to to turn to all the Bible verses this morning. Many of them are listed there in your outline. But the Bible says we're crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. The Bible says that we are dead with Christ, Romans 2.6, Colossians 2.20. The Bible says we are hid with Christ here in this passage. Colossians 3, 3. The Bible says that we are risen with him. Colossians 3, 1. The Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ. I died with Christ. I rose with Christ. And this morning the Bible says if you're saved, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Look back at chapter 2, verse number 12 of Colossians. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. Through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all 
trespasses. There are two aspects to this. One of the aspects of being risen with Christ is it's really addressed in Romans 6. We, are, we, we, are, we, we died with him, we're dead with him, we are buried with him. But what happened three days after they put his body in a tomb? The Bible says he rose again. We believe that. We, we know that to be true. And the baptism that we follow in as believers, it is a picture that the old life is gone. And just like Christ rose again, we have been given new life in Jesus Christ. This risen with Christ means that God has made me a new creature. This risen with Christ means that God has given me a new life. This risen with Christ means that all things are passed away and all things are become new. I am now indwelt by the Spirit of God and I am now a son of God and I have Jesus Christ living inside of me who always did what pleased the Father, and I now have the ability, if I will appropriate that power, to live in a way that pleases God. I have new life. I'm risen with Christ. But in Ephesians 2, it means something else. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse number 5. Ephesians 2 and verse number 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, look at this, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through Jesus Christ, the passage goes on, by grace you're saved through faith, verse 8, not of works, verse 9, created unto good works, verse number 10. But in verse number 6, the Bible says we are, present tense, right now, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, we're about to read in Colossians, and it's all throughout the New Testament, that Christ is at the right hand of God. But you know what God did when you trusted Jesus Christ? Not only did he put Jesus Christ in you, he put you in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit, are we all baptized into one body? That is, at the moment of salvation, God takes you and he places you in his son. And if you're in him, and if he's there, then you're there. And, and, and if God says something is going to be, which he can do because he's God, he sees the end from the beginning. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. If God says something is going to happen, it's just as good as if it's done. That's why oftentimes in the Old Testament you'll read prophecy, but it's written in the past tense. As if it's already taken place. It hasn't yet, but it's going to. And if God said it's going to happen, it may as well have already happened. Because God's word is true. So seated with Christ in heavenly places. First of all, I'm in Christ and he's there. And then the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. If God said, I'm going to heaven, I'm just as good as there. I might as well be there in body, though, in body right now. I'm right here. But what a hope we have and how secure it is. My salvation is as secure as the integrity of God. 
Praise the Lord. So we are risen with Christ. Second argument, second statement in Colossians 3, Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And we don't have time to run all those references this morning, but that seat that Jesus took at God's right hand, it is a place of privilege. It is a place of power. It is a position of distinction and of honor. And the Bible just told us in Ephesians 2, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so this ties back into what we said about being joint heirs with Christ. Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 1, is the heir of all things. And if you're a joint heir with him, do you know what that means you're an heir of? All things. We don't understand oftentimes. We we, we fail to realize oftentimes just how privileged of a position we have being saved and being in Jesus Christ. If I'm risen with Christ and Christ is at the right hand of God, guess where I get to spend eternity? I have been plugged into a source of power that is literally out of this world. I have been given a position of distinction and of honor that is so much higher than anything that anyone on earth could ever attain. Somebody gains the world but loses their soul, I've got so much more than they do. Somebody makes the Forbes top 40 richest people in the world as nothing compared to the inheritance that I've been given because I'm saved and I'm in Christ. We're risen with him and he's seated at the right hand of God. Verse number 3 says in Colossians 3, it's point number 3, in verse number 3, that we are dead. We are dead. Did you know you're dead today? It's a little weird. It's an interesting concept because in a sense we are very much alive, right? This is obviously a spiritual truth and it's something that that we really do need to understand. Back to Ephesians 2 again. Ephesians chapter 2. Get Ephesians 2 and Romans 6 together. Ephesians 2 and Romans 6. Ye are dead. It's not like a zombie thing. It's a spiritual thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened. That word quickened means made alive, so as to never die again. You hath he quickened. Okay, the word of God is quick and powerful. It is alive. It is life-giving. This word quick, it has to do with life. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay? When I violated the law of God, knowingly, willingly, by my own volition and choice, I understood the commandment and I transgressed the commandment. Romans 7 says, sin revived and I died. I was dead to God. I was dead spiritually. But Jesus Christ came and he gave me life. 
I was dead. He made me alive. I was dead in sins, but when Christ forgave my sins, he gave me eternal life. We understand that. Then Romans chapter 6, verse number 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is a great comparison. When we were lost, according to Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin. Now that we're saved, if you're saved this morning, now that you're saved, according to Romans 6, you are dead to sin. And that's a lot better than being dead in sin. The lost person is dead in sin. The saved person is dead to sin. Maybe you've heard the phrase like this. Somebody is cutting off a relationship. Somebody doesn't want to speak to the other person again ever in their lives. Something has, something has so come between them that there is never a chance that uh, they'll ever be back together. The statement might be made, you are dead to me. You, you've heard that. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that's the believer in sin. That, that is what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Instead of being dead in sin, we are dead to sin. The old life is gone. If, if you study Romans 7, we were married to sin, but that relationship has ended. Sin has died. That old life is dead, and now we can enter into and have entered into a new relationship with Christ and the person the Holy Spirit living inside, enabling us and strengthening us. That's what's given us in the rest of the passage there in Romans chapter 6. We are dead. How so? Dead to sin. Old life is gone. The old man is, as, as far as God is concerned, subdued. Actually, read some of those verses with me in Romans 6. Let me, let me show it to you there. Romans chapter 6. And verse number 10, For in that he died, Christ, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. <coughs> verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. This is how God sees us, and this is how God wants us to see us. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does all that, all that mean? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Point number four in verse number three, our life is hid with Christ in God. Just let me read you a couple cross references. 1 Corinthians 3:23, and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. This again speaks of security. In John 10, Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man, listen to this, pluck them out of my hand." Remember that? John chapter 10, verse 27. So we are firmly grasped in the hand of Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. He said, no man shall pluck you out of my hand. And he said, my father which gave them me is greater than all. 
And no man is able to pluck you out of my Father's hand. So, so we are Christ's, 1 Corinthians 3, and Christ is God's, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. On top of all that, Ephesians says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So our life is hid with Christ in God, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The whole of the Godhead is keeping our salvation. The Holy Spirit's keeping us. The Father is keeping us. The Son is keeping us. If you're saved, you can never be anything other than saved. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And then verse number 4, point number 5, Christ is our life. Christ is our life. We've got many references there. There are many more that could be added. This is true in a number of senses. Christ gives life. That's true. Christ is a source of life. He is a life giver. Physically, you got your life from Christ. He made you. Spiritually, if you have spiritual life, you got that life from the one who is the way and the truth and the life. 1 John 5.20 says that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Jesus equals life. Jesus is eternal life. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 1. He is the life. John chapter 14 and verse number 6. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. If any man walk in darkness he and, and, and but believes on Jesus, he will have the light of life. Jesus Christ came to give us life more abundant. But not only does he give life, that's what the Bible says. The Bible also says that Christ is our life. Christ is our life. How did, how did the Holy Spirit have Paul say it in Philippians chapter 1? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Wisdom and righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that according as is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I love how life in this passage in Colossians 3 is singular. Because the pronoun is plural. Look at it in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 4. When Christ who is our life. Now, at first glance that doesn't seem grammatically correct. Our should then carry a plural noun, our lives. You're supposed to keep these things consistent in sentence structure. You're back in school. We can talk about grammar. It'll be okay, right? But it says when Christ who is our, plural, life, singular. And what this is indicating is this identity where Christ is life and life is Christ. This is what unifies all of us who are in Christ together. It doesn't say Christ is our lives. It says Christ is our life. We all have the same life. We are all one together in Him. It's an amazing thing. Christ is our life. He shall appear, 
verse number 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. We are looking for, Titus 2.13, that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse John 2.28, we, we can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus Christ is going to keep the promise. One day the trumpet's going to sound. One day those clouds are going to roll back. One day we're going to go meet the Lord in the air. That, that is as certain as any event that has taken place in the past because God said it's going to happen. He shall appear and we shall be with him in glory. Those are some amazing promises. Those are some amazing truths. It's, it's incredible what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ. And, and not only do the first two chapters of Colossians focus in on that, but we, we have kind of all that summarized in the first four verses. But it, again, it, it's just to, to undergird and support and, and highlight and underscore the, the instruction that we're given here. In light of all of these truths, stop living for this earth. Stop living for here and now. Don't waste your life punching in and, and clocking out. Don't, don't just run on the, on the, what do they call that? The hamster wheel. Don't make your life a NASCAR race where you go around and around and around and around and you finish the very same place that you start. Invest in eternity. Lay up treasure in heaven. Get your eyes off of this world and on to the next. Seek those things which are above. Set your affection. On things above. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We look not at the things which are temporal, but the things, we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. We need to look at the things which are not seen, those things which are eternal. Affection, almost done. Affection means a number of things. It can refer to passion, it can refer to a bent of the mind towards a particular object. It can mean a desire, an inclination, or propensity. But, but think about it this way. Affection is the state of being affected. What we need to do is let these truths affect us. What we need to do is let our position in Christ affect the way that we live for Christ. I think that's really the crux of the matter here. But the Bible says in verse number 2, seek. That's on purpose. That's intentional. That implies effort. The Bible says in verse number 2, set your affection. This doesn't happen automatically. This isn't the default position. You've got to take your desire and place it on spiritual things. You've got you've to rein in your focus and direct it toward heavenly things. You've got to keep your heart and ask God every day to incline it 
towards spiritual things. Set your affection on things above. God help us. Lord, thank you for your word this morning and, and God, all the truth that it reveals about this great salvation that you have given us, all of the eternal implications of it. But God, I pray that it have a real effect on the way we live from day to day. God, help us. God, help us not to get to the judgment seat of Christ with nothing to show for the gift of life and the gift of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given each of us who are saved. Help us to seek those things that are above. Help us to set our affection on things above. God, please help us. We need your help. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.